We're uh, getting lined up. I hope everybody's encouraged and ready to support our Czech mission team that's going to go over and rally around Gina and Julia and the Denny's. It's going to be fantastic. And I don't know if you mentioned this, Francis, but we will have an opportunity next Sunday to do uh, a time of prayer that will take place after communion uh, during uh, the equipping hour. We'll actually have an opportunity to pray corporately for all the needs that are going to, um, uh, that exist for the Czech uh, trip and the ministry that's going to take place, and we're going to have a, a program all set up so that we can pray for specific requests as it relates to the ministry needs that are going to be over there. And then, of course, if you need somebody to practice on as it relates to ping pong, just call me and I, I can play a little bit, but um, I will at least build your confidence, okay? Because you'll beat me and then you'll just be like, I am ready for this tournament, okay? So. There we have it. All right, well, if you haven't done so, uh, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Titus this morning, and I trust that uh, your hearts are encouraged. We've had the opportunity to sing songs to the King and rejoice in the, the worship that we've been able to have. And then now we have an extremely full plate this morning in Titus, and this is going to be the fourth part of our series entitled The Priority of Church Leadership, as we've been working through this opening section of Scripture, chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. And um, it's going to be a, a pretty hefty task because last week we had five negative qualifications. I called them disqualifications. And then this week we actually have six in verse 8. And it is going to be a full, full time. Please join me. I'm going to pray, ask God to help me, help us, and uh, that he'll bless us in our study. Please join me. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time to study your unfailing word. Your word says in Proverbs 13, 13, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded by it. Your word never returns void, and I pray that you would show up in great measure, that you would uh, equip us and illuminate our path and guide our understanding as we continue our study of this passage that we may indeed be rewarded by your instruction and not in debt to it. And may our hearts be humbled and eager to receive what these qualifications teach us about life and ministry and leadership in your church. Help us to be committed students of the word. Help us to receive it with humility and to resist the prideful temptation of standing over it. Remove man-centered thinking from our minds and have us see what you desire for us. Father, as a simple clay pot preaching to simple clay pots, I pray specifically that you would assist us as your word encourages us to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, that we would be sanctified by your word just as your Son prayed for us because your scriptures are an unending fountain of truth and guidance for our growth. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. To be or not to be? That is the question. Famous words from the familiar Shakespearean play of Hamlet, and this comes from a scene that functions as a soliloquy, and Hamlet is in a place where he is contemplating life and death, he's actually even thinking about suicide as he's struggling through the pains of life and 
unfairness of this life. And this question explains Hamlet's hesitation to directly and immediately avenge his father's murder. It's a serious question with serious implications to be or not to be as he was thinking through it. I believe it's an appropriate question that can remind us to reflect on God's Word to assess whether or not a person is qualified to serve in church leadership. To be or not to be. That is the question. And sadly, in many congregations and denominations today, these qualifications are disregarded. Selections are made based on what seems appropriate for the times or how well the person fits the ministry need in the ministry moment before God's Word is used to assess whether or not someone is even biblically qualified. In some instances, selections are made based on a person's willingness and availability alone. And don't we just praise God? We praise God for the instruction in Titus that affirms that His Word is completely sufficient to assess leaders. Amen? Amen? Lights are on bright. I'm, I'm, you're out there, right? Amen? I'm, we're, we're, we're turning into a Baptist church. See it? You just, you, here, here it's happening. Right before our eyes. Elders, deacons, deaconesses, future elders, future deacons, future deaconesses will ask this question. To be or not to be? In the very first message of the series, we saw that God's leaders appoint God's leaders so that the church is led God's way in verses 4 and 5. And the book of Acts provides for us this historical account, really, of the Apostle Paul and other men traveling city by city to evangelize the lost before returning at a later point to establish elders in the local churches. And they went city by city, church by church. And God used the Apostle Paul to instruct Timothy as well as Titus. Timothy, of course, his ministry in Ephesus. Titus, who was committed to serving and spending his life for the churches on the island of Crete. And elder-led churches are a priority to God. And we rejoice in churches that continue to be led this way some 2,000 years later, just as God prescribes. We're thankful to be at a church that supports other ministries that do the same for Czech missions, for Czech ministry, for that church in Clodno led by Pastor Marcus Denny who is doing that very same thing, training up men to be elders to lead the church. We rejoice in God's purpose provision to allow Cornerstone to be an elder-led church as well. And the first message of the series was followed by two more messages. And they were over the last couple of Sundays that helped us see that God's Word assesses God's leaders so that the church will be led God's way. And we tackled verses 6 and verses 7. In verses 6, we saw that God's Word assesses a, leadership's, a leader's relationship excuse me, to his family. First as a husband and then as a father. Spiritual leadership always starts in the management of the home. And it's the very reason why the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul to record a parenthetical question that is in 1 Timothy 3.5 that says, 
If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how is he going to manage the household of God? And then last week in verse 7, we studied that God's word assesses a leader's relationship to his own character. Being more specific, this verse shares five negative qualifications that cannot plague a leader's or future leader's character. For those who are able to do it, I trust that the Lord blessed you as you sat down and wrote out your list, 15 ways to die to being self-willed. And I know the Lord used it for me. I was, uh, as I prepared my list, and I had actually done it before the sermon last week, but as I went back and also had some time in Philippians 2, um, was able to be challenged by God's Word, and He allowed me to see my own tendency that when I go to sit down at the dinner table, that um, I usually, after we pray, pick up my fork and knife and start to feed myself pretty quickly and completely disregard the fact that I have a wife and three other kids that are with us at the table and noticed her as she is like a little mother hen, like dropping food into their mouths. And here I am over here just eating, eating all all by myself. The the Lord convicted me. And, And of course, my pride tried to rise up. It tried to justify it. It's like being on a flight, you know, and they say that the oxygen masks are going to drop in the plane, right? And make sure you secure your own mask before securing the mask of your children. So using that rationale in my thinking, right? Hardly a, a life-death scenario. And so I was very thankful that Philippians 4 helped me to see that I was looking out for my own personal interests instead of those of my wife and kids. And I praise the Lord for the lesson that I learned Well, today we have a lofty goal because last week, as I've already mentioned, there were five negative qualifications, and this week we have six positive qualifications in verse 8. Let's tear into Titus again. Please open your Bibles there if you haven't already, and I'm going to read this passage one more time for us. Starting in verse 4 of Titus 1, it says this, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. And if you recall there, that you would supply what is lacking and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If any man is above reproach, we talked about that term, being above reproach. In Chrysostom, our early church father says that every virtue is implied in this word, translated above reproach. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children. And remember, there was two different views there. And I'm I'm sharing with you how I would translate the text. Or your verse might say, having children who believe. Okay. For the overseer, and they can't be not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And then verse 7, for the overseer must uh, must be above reproach reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. 
in verse 7, the Holy Spirit led Paul to record five things that a Christian is not to be. This is the to not to be section, okay? Their character cannot be plagued with these five self-absorbed characteristics. They cannot be self-willed and think that only their way is the right way. They cannot be quick-tempered or a person who's characterized as having a short fuse. They cannot be enslaved to alcohol or anything else to cope with the problems of this life. They cannot be pugnacious and bully people around and manipulate situations for their own benefit. And finally, they cannot be fond of sordid gain and they must have a heart that is completely free from the love of money. This is the not-to-be answer as God's Word assesses God's people for spiritual leadership in the church. Well, today in verse 8, we will see that God's Word continues to assess God's leaders so that the church will be led God's way. As your outline indicates in verse 8, God's will, God's Word will assess a leader's relationship to others. Verse 8 reads as follows, But the overseer must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. And you'll notice very quickly that our verse starts with a conjunction. The Apostle Paul hated periods. And he used conjunctions on a regular basis. And this conjunction does more than just connect us with the previous verse. This is a Greek conjunction, Allah, which is the strongest adversative possible. And Paul uses it to set up a contrast of what he's just shared in verse 7. And if you'll recall in a message that I preached back in Ephesians 5, where this same conjunction was used, I said that it it functions as a teeter-totter in in the verse. It it sets up the teeter-totter. It functions as a fulcrum, as as a pivot point. Ephesians 5.17 says, Do not be foolish, but Allah understand what the will of the Lord is. And I explained to you that it's impossible for a person to be acting out in foolishness and also be following God's will. Okay, It's it's like a teeter-totter. It won't function. And then in the very next verse, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. A person cannot pursue intoxication and drunkenness okay, and, and, and not quench the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. The two cannot take place together. And so we see this happening again right here between verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7 says an overseer or a ch- church leader must not be characterized by being self-willed, but he must be characterized by being just and righteous. An overseer or church leader must not be characterized by being quick-tempered or pugnacious, but he must be characterized by being self-controlled. An overseer or church leader must not be characterized by being drunken, but he must be characterized by loving what is good. An overseer or church leader must not be characterized by being fond of sordid gain, but he must be characterized by being devout or devoted to God and not money. Very rarely are conjunctions featured, but this one you don't want to miss. 
Notice that was punny on purpose, but you didn't catch us. Okay, normally we don't feature conjunctions, but this one you don't want to miss. But this one you don't want to miss. Okay, purposeful punniness. It's not my strength. Okay, also, just as the negative characteristics of verse 7 overlap, so also do the positive characteristics that we find in verse 8 overlap. All of them sum up or reveal the character of the person being assessed by the Word of God. Also important to see is that the Greek verb day, translated must be, is included in verse 8 as well. Okay, Verse 7, it says the overseer must be, and that gets carried over into verse 8, and that's why I included it in the reading when I read our, our verse 8 just moments ago. Well, just like last week, I want us to briefly put each of these qualifications under a microscope in order to see how God's word assesses a leader's relationship to others. And the first word, up to bat, is hospitable. And this compound Greek word, phylaxinos, literally means a love of strangers. And that'll sound familiar too because we've covered this word in a previous sermon as well. Phileo, to love. Xenos, strangers. Compound word, phylaxinos. In 1 Peter 4, 8, it says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. And then in verse 9, it says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And I think I, I shared this the last time I mentioned um, that this word shares the same root as the word hospital. Okay, Our English word hospital. It's actually the Latin word, hospitium, and they, they, they share the same root. And I, I shared that I worked as a healthcare manager for a huge healthcare corporation up in Anchorage, Alaska. And to provide quality healthcare was our main objective. And for those of you who work in the medical arena, you have the same desire. And your hospital or clinic, wherever you work, is to provide the best possible healthcare that you can. And why do you do this? It's because you care. And yes, you're getting paid to care, but you've been trained specifically to care for the needs that people will have. You've been equipped to ask them questions and to assist them in the best possible way. In a strikingly similar fashion, the church functions in the same way. No matter who comes through our doors on Sunday morning, we want to minister to them. We want to care for them. It is phylaxinos. We want to have a love for them. And this word actually is a love for people in general, and it actually includes strangers. So that's why we're commanded in 1 Peter 4, 9 to be hospitable to one another without complaint. We're doing that uh, regardless whether brand new people should show up or not. We're going to serve each other in the same way. And so the opportunities to apply this uh, abound. And, and certainly every time we host someone in our homes, we have the opportunity to fill our homes with the aroma of Christ anytime that we have guests over as we love and serve and care for them. And then there are other ways to apply this. And I wanted to give you a few just for those of you who are taking notes and you want to write them down. I think this is a, a strategic thing to do to focus on being hospitable. Set a time each week or each month 
for hospitality. Use your home as a place of rest. If someone in your care group has gone through a hard time, if you sense that someone in your care group is fatiguing, use your home as your hospital. Invite them over. Have them kick off their shoes. Oh, wait, they're going to do that anyway. Okay. But put them in your most comfortable chair. Have them kick up their feet. Provide them with a drink. Have a meal prepared. Talk to them. Encourage them. Be strategic in how you do that. Second thing you can do is make a list of people who would be encouraged by your offer of hospitality. It may go beyond your care group, right? It could be someone else in the church as well, and we can be strategic. Think of people that you can invite over during the holidays. Maybe it's somebody who's been widowed. Maybe it's somebody who's been divorced. Maybe it's an only child and their parents live on the other side of the country and they don't have family immediately accessible. Also, enjoy creative activities with your guests and make your home a fun place to visit. That's, that's a joy in hospitality, right? You can have some games and you can go to Walmart and, and, and get some fun stuff to do, whether it's um, cranium or just simple games of Uno. You can have, you can have an engaging time and really bless somebody by making your home a fun place. And, of course, you can invite missionaries. And I know that people usually fight over Marcus and Amy when they come back from Czech Republic. But there's also other opportunities of missionaries who come off the field. And I've been really encouraged how our church has provided hospitality for so many people. Well, certainly one additional way that I want to call our attention to before we move on is God transitioning our, our meeting place from here over to our new property on Walnut Avenue. Okay, maybe we'll, that's what we call it, Huey. We'll call it the Walnut, the Walnut property. That's where we're going. Okay, We're going over to a new property that is going to be very visible to a lot of people. And it's very possible that we're going to have a lot more people who just by seeing the church sign are going to want to come visit our church. And it will serve us well to be prepared to be on the lookout so that we can serve their needs when they stop in to see us. Well, before we move on to our next verse, um, or the next word in verse 8, notice the contrast again from the disqualifications in verse 7 that have us focus on self with the positive character qualifications in verse 8 that focus on service to others. A hospitable church should be led by hospitable leaders who lead hospitable members by example. God's Word assesses a leader's relationship to others, and an overseer must be characterized by being hospitable. And the second way this is seen is by loving what is good. And it's interesting that both of these words at the beginning of verse 8, they are compound Greek words, but they actually share the same word, phileo, at the beginning. It's to love. Okay, And this next word is uh, philagathos, and the word agathos means good. So if you know somebody named Agatha, okay, you, that's somebody whose her name literally means good. Next time you see her, you can go up and say, you got a good name. Just let her know. Okay? And so we see this um, emphasis here, and there is something that Paul wants us to see, that there is love in uh, caring for people as we show 
hospitality to them. There is a love for the things that are good. And I want to talk a little bit more about this. The ESV says lovers of good, while the NASB says loving what is good. And one commentary described it this way, one who willingly and with self-denial does good or is kind. Another commentator described it as being ready to do what is beneficial to others. And here's what another commentary said when speaking of the early church. The early church knew it as an unwearying activity of love. And again, the focus is on character and relationships with other people. It isn't talking about a love for lasagna. It's not talking about a love for a good sports rivalry. It's a love of goodness that is directed toward others. And when Titus needed to appoint elders, he was commanded to appoint men of excellent character, men who will serve as God's stewards and examples in the church. An overseer must have affections, and they must be for the right thing. The object of his affections must be focused on what is good and beneficial for the church. And as I was thinking of a New Testament command that would bring this to bear on all of our lives, not just the elder qualifications, my mind immediately went to Romans 12.9, which says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Practically, we want to hate evil things and evil influences. We want to cling or hold fast to what is good. Godly people, godly activities, godly living, godly direction. It's an all-encompassing characteristic of who the believer is. And we want to cling to it. And it's a characteristic that should describe every believer, but it's one that must describe every leader in the church. To be or not to be. That is the question. An elder must not be self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, or fond of sordid gain. On the contrary, he must be hospitable, a lover of what is good. And third, he must be sensible. And this is the Greek word sophron. And it means sober-minded, prudent, self-controlled. And ironically, it's another Greek root that we studied in 1 Peter 4, 7, in that passage that says that the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment, therefore be sophron. This is the verb form of the same Greek root, and it's an emphasis on being right-headed, level-headed. And again, it stands in stark contrast to someone who is characterized as being quick-tempered or pugnacious. And I don't know if you got a chance to see it on the news just this last week, but there was a judge in a courtroom in the state of Florida who got upset with a public defender who would not stop talking when he was told to stop talking. And it infuriated the judge, and the judge says, we need to take this outside. And he walked out of the courtroom, all this on video, and the public defender follows him straight out. And you know what the judge did? He punched him right in the face. And they broke into this altercation. Happened just this week. 
How did this happen? The judge was not sober-minded. He got intoxicated with rage and anger. And he quickly became pugnacious. And the Holy Spirit also led Paul to use this qualification as well as the next term that we'll look at in Titus chapter 2 in a gospel context, okay? Please turn there with me. Um, Turn to Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. And I mentioned in a previous sermon that I'm eager to preach this passage because we'll be able to study the, the, the grace of God in depth. And verse 11 speaks of God's saving grace when it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That word salvation is soterios. That's where we get soteriology, the study of salvation. And this isn't teaching a universal salvation, and we're going to address that when we get to the passage. But I want us to turn our attention now to verse 12, and it says this. We see that God's grace is also a sanctifying or transforming grace, which according to verse 12, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. Sophron, right there. Instead of an adjective, here sophron is functioning as an adverb describing how a believer lives. And it's important for us to see that the fruit of godly character that leads someone to be qualified as a church leader is rooted in the gospel. They must have a heart that has been born again. They must have a heart that has been given these new desires and an enablement to develop this type of character. It's a spiritual work of God. He saves us from our fallen character and then enables a man or a woman to respond by being so thrown, sensible. If I can say it this way, once saved, we can be sensible in the Spirit rather than being enslaved to being pugnacious or quick-tempered in the flesh. Okay? And it is the need, every human need, right? For God to intervene through the call of the gospel to save us from eternal condemnation, to save us from fallen character, to save us that we could serve and be used according to the purposes that he's called us to for his glory. And yes, it happens also to be for our best, to say it's for our good, I don't think is good enough. It's for our very, very best. And how does that happen? A person is, is drawn to God. A person turns from their sin and life being absorbed with being pugnacious and being self-willed. And all of a sudden, they experience and taste this life and they taste the dregs of this life and they realize that it's hopeless. It's despair. And then God in His goodness allows faithful evangelists, people who are committed to sharing the gospel with people at school and their co-workers and their friends, and He cries out to them. And He uses them as an ambassador. He uses them as a voice and to cry out to that co-worker or that fellow student and let them know that their life is hard. But it doesn't have to be. God can change your life. God will change your life. 
if you will acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need his forgiveness, my friend, he will give it to you. And your life will never be the same. You will call out to him. You will repent from living your foolish, self-absorbed life. And you'll trust completely in the Savior. And you'll trust completely in the Lord who functions as the new authority in your life. Well, this is true for this character qualification, but I think it goes without saying that this is true. The, the gospel context is important for every character qualification that we see in Titus 1, 5-9. And our next qualification is the word just. It's the Greek word uh, dikaios. And dikaios means just. It means righteous. And also by implication, it means innocent. Of all these terms listed in verse 8, this one carries the most similarity with the definition to be above reproach. And if you recall, when we talked about that word above reproach, we also translated it as blameless. We said that it could be without accusation. Remember talking about that? And in this case, the chaos reflects an innocence of character. And Paul uses it of speaking of Christ's righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8 when describing Christ as the Dikaios judge, the righteous judge. And as one commentator shared, it is a quality possessed perfectly only by God, but which He forges in His children who walk in faith and obedience after Him. Here it probably refers to the individual as law-abiding, a man who is honest and fair and good in all of his dealings. And as I shared moments ago, this word is also used in the same verse in Titus 2.12 in a gospel context. Verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, Instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sophron, sensibly, and to live righteously. Dikaios. Okay? And here it functions as an adverb describing, again, how we're to live. We're to live sensibly. We're to live righteously. We're to live godly in the present age. And this is a progressive reality in the Christian life. As a person grows and matures in Christ, it is an active reality and fruit of gospel ministry. It isn't passive in any way, shape, or form. And we can see this in the logical progression in how leaders have been established historically in the church. Paul led by example before enlisting Timothy and Titus and Barnabas and other men who evangelized and discipled men to mature and grow. Men instructed through God's Word, through Paul's oral apostolic teaching, because they didn't have the written Word yet. But then once the letters were written in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus, then they had God's Word to assess and evaluate these leaders. And here's a great verse to remember. And you're welcome to turn there with me. 2 Timothy 2.22 says this. It says to pursue righteousness. The entire verse reads, Now flee from Youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, 
love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Paul, of course, is writing to Timothy, but the application is for us all. The command is to follow hastily. It's to press forward. It's to pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. And it's actually the noun form in the Greek. Instead of dikaios, it's dikaiosune. And I love this verse because it encourages us to team up with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. This is discipleship. This is establishing those relationships, those meaningful spiritual relationships to team up with somebody else who is calling upon the Lord from a pure heart. This is Care Group 101. This is the opportunity to gather weekly for spiritual growth and the pursuit of righteousness together, sharing life and praying for each other in the pursuit of Christ's likeness. And this is, and we'll talk about this when we get to Titus 2, this isn't a divine righteousness in justification. This is a pursuit of righteousness in our sanctification. And we're called to pursue it. If you pursue righteousness in your justification, that will produce a Pharisee. You'll produce right, try to uh, uh, seek righteousness in your own merit. But if you pursue righteousness in your sanctification, you know what that will produce? That will produce a godly man. That will produce a godly woman. We pursue it. Well, our next word offers us more insight into this pursuit as these terms of character overlap with each other. To be or not to be. A leader must be, as we've already studied, someone who's characterized as being hospitable. Second, characterized as loving what is good. Third, characterized as being sensible. Fourth, as we just saw, characterized as being just. And now fifth, they're characterized by being devout. The Greek word here is hosios, and it's most commonly translated holy or devout. And once again, it is a term that only God and Christ can perfectly fulfill. It can, however, also be used to qualify a way to describe that which is offered up to God in worship, as 1 Timothy 2.8 alludes to in the lifting up of hosios hands. The lifting up of holy hands. The life of a church leader must be characterized by devotion and holiness fully dedicated to the glory of God and brought into conformity to the will and purpose of God. And it's why the Holy Spirit, the third member of a triune God who is a holy God, led the Apostle Paul to record for us in Romans 12.1 where it says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, I exhort you, brethren, to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices to God. It is your spiritual service of worship. Many are familiar with the story of the Apostle James, the son of Zebedee, known as one of the sons of thunder. He 
followed the Lord with incredible faithfulness and devotion. He was captured to be executed in A.D. 45. What few people know about is the story of his executioner. In A.D. 45, the emperor Claudius charged Herod Agrippa to suppress the church of Christ. And so Herod laid his bloody hands on this apostle and on the feast of Passover put him into prison. And we get this whole account for us in Acts chapter 12. After he was sentenced to death, he was to be executed by sword in Jerusalem. And Clemens relates that the executioner, seeing James' devotion to Christ and his innocence, was converted to the Christian faith and died with him. According to the annotation of Eusebius Pamphilius from Clemens Alexandrinus, the executioner was so moved on an account of the sentenced death of James that he professed himself to be a Christian. And so as it states, both were led forth together to death. As they were led out, the executioner asked James to forgive him. James, after a little deliberation, said, Peace be with thee, and kissed him. And then both were beheaded. I share this story because when a person is characterized by holiness and devotion to Christ, it not only impacts their own life, but it impacts others and the people that are around them. And in the end, our devotion may not lead to us being beheaded or even to physical death. But all of us as believers, if our hearts answer the call of Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it will lead us to die to the things of this world as we live holy lives devoted to Christ. Devotion is most tested when it costs us something. To be or not to be, that is the question. And God's Word assesses a leader's relationship to others. An elder must not be self-willed, quick-tempered, addicted to wine, pugnacious, or fond of sordid gain. On the contrary, he must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, and devout. And verse 8 finishes with one final positive qualification. A church leader must be self-controlled. And one commentator said this, he who would rule over others must first rule over himself. It's been suggested that these last three characteristics may be viewed as looking manward, Godward, and selfward, respectively, as you consider the, the last three listed. All of which have a bearing on relationships with others. And this compound Greek word is actually made up of the Greek preposition in, which is epsilon and nun. It's, it's, the, it's translated in, okay? And it's pronounced n, uh, and maybe my language is limited to communicate that. It can also be translated in with by for all my seminary brothers that are out there, right? But according to context, it's, it's translated in, and the second word is kratos, which is translated power. 
I mean, so put together, we're talking about someone in power or having control over oneself. And your translation might say prudent or disciplined. Is anyone's translation prudent or disciplined? Okay, a couple people. Sophron is the word that we talked about before that could also be translated self-control. And now we have this word and kratos. This can also be translated as one having self-control. And sophron has its stress upon self-control in, an out, in outward relations, while in kratos has it, uh, its emphasis uh, focused on mastering one's urges and desires. And that's why some have opted to translate it prudence, because when you control the impulses of your tongue and that your desire to speak out and to share what you believe is right and to speak, you exercise prudence when you with, withhold your words. It's wise. Well, our time has diminished and actually, I want to turn there because I want you to see it from God's Word. Can you turn to Second Peter real quick? Because I wanted you to see the value of being self-controlled for us all in our, in our lives. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 5, and really this whole opening 10 verses is just a description of, of the Christian life. About, I'm going to read it from verse 1. I, I can't resist. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and save, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything, to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful passage. And I wanted to share that because it does feature the importance of self-control in, in our growth and our godly character. And I, I even had my own qualifications on the line as I was at my brother-in-law's wedding last night. I performed the ceremony and we had our three young children there who the wedding was supposed to start at 4.30 and it started at 6. <laughs> Russian, Russian time frame there. And... Um, Long story short, our girls were getting tired, and by the, they didn't serve dinner till nearly eight o'clock, and they, they were just they were winding down, okay, and um, really getting tired. And we needed to go, and yet I knew my wife wanted to be there, 
because it's her brother's big special day, and yet it was just like, ah! You know, if I, if I would have had hair, I would have pulled it out. But since I don't, I'm limited, right, to what I can grab, okay, ah! But I needed, uh, it, it, it exposed within me my need to be just more self-control, even aware of, of the surroundings and my wife. Uh, being a godly woman even drew my attention to that reality. To be or not to be, God's word assesses God's leaders so that the church will be led God's way. I want to finish with this story. A major institution that ranked among the Fortune 500 was working to make an unheard of move. They were going to promote a 38-year-old vice president to president. The man was an impressive businessman who wooed and awed the board of directors. Upon completing the final interview process, the board broke for a quick lunch with plans to offer this man the prestigious position of president after they all returned from lunch. The young man went to lunch alone at the cafeteria, but was unintentionally followed by several of the board members who stood in line behind him. And when the young man came to the bread section, he placed two three-cent butters on his tray and then quickly covered them up with his napkin. And as he checked out, he never revealed the hidden six cents worth of butter. When everyone returned to the boardroom for what was to be a joyous occasion, the mood had dramatically changed. The promising young man was not only denied the helm of the company, but was fired from his position as vice president as he was deemed no longer qualified. All of this revealed by six cents worth of butter. It's not that God's basic standards are higher for pastors, elders, and church leaders than they are for other believers. It's not. Every believer is to strive for godliness and godly growth and to live a life that is above reproach. And a Christian who lives carelessly or indifferent towards the impurity that can enter into their life, they don't forfeit their salvation. They don't. Right? They need to grow. They need to mature. But what Paul is communicating here in Titus 1 with these qualifications and also in 1 Timothy 3, if they do respond indifferently, if they do uh, make light of impurity, it does disqualify them from church leadership. It does disqualify them from being an elder, a deacon, or a deaconess. Okay, and I praise God that I am amongst elders, ministry leaders, and church members that love God's word and use it as the ultimate standard of life and ministry. I rejoice in you, Cornerstone. I rejoice in you, and I praise God that we get to link our arms together and serve together as qualified leaders in the ministry. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, Heavenly Father, we bow our heads thanking you again for 
the reality of what your word has done as it functions as a mirror that we get to look into. And it is for this design purpose that you allow us to look into your word so we can continue to grow and see who you are. It reveals who you are. It reveals the perfect character and attributes and righteousness and holiness and justice and goodness in every way of who you are. And we cherish your word because it allows us to see you. And Father, in your goodness and according to your plan, this mirror also functions in such a way that it allows us to see ourselves. Just as James penned in his epistle, that allows us, as we look intently, it allows us to see who we are, that we wouldn't be double-minded and that we just take a quick glimpse, but that your word would function the way that it's supposed to function and that it would indeed assess leaders as they look into this mirror to be or not to be. It's not Shakespeare's question, Father. It's your question. It's your question that you ask of us to be or not to be. And you want us to look intently. And so we praise you for the Apostle Paul, for his faithfulness to provide the oral instruction to the men of his day, and then the way that you used him to provide this written instruction to the people of our day. And I pray for all of our future leaders. I pray for our future elders, our future deacons and deaconesses, that you would use your word accordingly. You would help them to see. Help them to know with certainty that this is your growth in their life. This is you qualifying for them to serve in this capacity. This is you who puts a desire within them to serve in these offices. And then, Father, for the rest of our church, it is the same as you continue just to grow us individually as Christians to live lives that are above reproach so that we can be salt, that we can be light in this dark and tasteless world. So Lord, I pray that you'll use your word this week. I pray that you would cause our hearts to even go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and to look at those 10 verses and have our hearts be encouraged. We give you praise for the spiritual progress that is being made across the board in our church. We know it's a mark of your faithfulness. We're grateful to be at such a place. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Christ's name.